wise man was once asked the question, would you rather be feared or loved? In response, he said, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. And that's from none other than Michael Gary Scott, one of the greatest TV shows of all time, The Office. Now, why do we start with that? Well, because ordinarily, you know, we might typically think of fear and love as being unrelated or even mutually exclusive, but as only Michael Scott could do in his own way, he shows that fear and love can be much more closely related than we ever might have imagined. Well, this morning we're considering the subject of fear and its intimately close relation, wisdom. And we might not typically think of fear and wisdom as being two things that that ought to go together, but our text this morning shows that these, these two are indeed intimately and inseparably related to one another, and that in all reality, if you ever expect to embody and enjoy a life of wisdom, you must first begin by fearing rightly. Because, if I could put it this way, there is a kind of fear that is the, the mother of wisdom. There is a kind of fear that begets wisdom. Wisdom comes from fearing and fearing rightly. And this is what we see now as we turn to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the word of our holy and gracious God this morning. Hear now God's word coming to us. From Solomon's pen in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts right now to grasp and understand your word and to even behold the Christ in your word that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, being made more and more in his image and likeness to the glory of your glorious grace with which you have blessed us in the beloved. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, undoubtedly, we've seen over the last 21 weeks that the overarching purpose and point of the book of Proverbs is is to impart wisdom to us uh, as God's beloved people. And Proverbs is a a book of wisdom, and and we've seen how practical this book can be, haven't we? Uh, Derek Kidner was, was right to once sum up Proverbs' idea of wisdom as godliness and work clothes right? Uh, We've looked at what godliness in work clothes looks like in a number of subject matters, finances, parenting, marriage, anger, work, friendship, decision-making, speech, sex, relationships, and and much more. However, as we we close out our time in Proverbs this morning, I'd like for us to, to maybe perhaps take a step back and consider not simply what wisdom leads to, but where it comes from. And I want to consider not just wisdom's fruit in all of those areas, but its root. We've clearly seen where wisdom leads to. Godliness 
and speech, financial integrity, hard work, healthy marriages, and all the rest of it, that's where wisdom leads us to, but where does it come from in the first place? And that seems like the, the kind of question we ought to get crystal clarity on how we might answer. And indeed, I, I hope it has been clear over the last 21 weeks, but in order to pursue clarity all the more, I want to address and speak to this one last time this morning and consider here that wisdom comes from fear. A life of wisdom, of godliness and work clothes, it proceeds from fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the soul of a life of wisdom. It is wisdom's lifeblood. Without the fear of the Lord, wisdom never begins or grows or perseveres. It is essential if we are to be wise. Now, I know that, that this all sounds familiar to you because, you know, we've seen this as something of a, a unifying theme throughout Proverbs. We've, we've actually discussed this in some measure several times over the last five months. We've seen that while this book speaks to many different subject matters and themes, a thread that unites them all is the fear of the Lord, right? If you'll reminisce with me and recall that our, our very first Sunday in the book of Proverbs, we looked at Proverbs 1, verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, which um, concludes by saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, as we slowly moved our way throughout the prologue of Proverbs in chapters 1 through 9, we saw in Proverbs 1.29 that the reason foolish people are foolish is because they don't fear the Lord. In Proverbs 2.5, we see that those who sincerely search for and seek after wisdom with all their hearts, they will find it, but they'll first find it by fearing the Lord. Proverbs 3.7 commands us to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 8.13, we learn that righteousness and hatred of evil is the result of the fear of the Lord. And of course, as we've read this morning, the, the prologue of Proverbs ends in chapter 9, just as it began with this statement that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That hardly, that's hardly where the theme concludes. The rest of Proverbs is teeming with statements that laud the fear of the Lord. Nineteen times this phrase is in some way repeated in Proverbs, while it's alluded to with other words even more. And Proverbs 14.27 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Proverbs 19.23 says that the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Proverbs 31.10, the last chapter of the book, says a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs, in the beginning, in the end, at the, the, the most important pivot points and all throughout, speaks to us about the fear of the Lord. This is a central and crucial theme in the book of Proverbs. And so it deserves our continued contemplation and consideration this morning as we conclude our time in Proverbs. And so as we consider the first half of our verse this morning, look with me at the fear of the Lord, what it means, the foundation of wisdom, what it builds, and the formation of fear, how it grows. First, the fear of the Lord, what it means. Our text says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And perhaps we should just begin by acknowledging that this phrase can seem somewhat confusing or sometimes jolting to our modern and Western Christian ears, right? If anything, if you have any experience uh, with, with church in the past, you've probably been taught that you should not fear the Lord, right? It, fear, it's typically thought, is a bad thing. It's something that will keep us from drawing near to God. It's something that will keep us from enjoying and being comforted by His presence and from seeking communion with Him and through Christ. Fearing God, then, 
would seem to actually keep us from enjoying some of the very gifts that we've been given through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, there are biblical texts that would bear this out. You might think of all the times people in the Bible are told to fear not, right? In fact, some have pointed out that the most repeated command in all the Bible is to not fear. In Luke 1, when Zechariah, the, the, the father of John the Baptist, is belting out a hymn of praise to God for keeping his promises and sending the Messiah to redeem his people, there he says that one reason God sent the Messiah to redeem his people so that we might serve him without fear. And of course, the main passage that might come to mind for some of us when considering this issue of fear is 1 John 4, 18, where the apostle writes, there's no fear in love. The perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so we, we might read passages like this and just conclude, well, we ought not fear God then. Fearing God is the opposite of what we're called to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in one sense, we would be right. However, the, the, the aggregation of biblical texts on the subject would also seem to challenge in an overly simplistic approach to this matter. Because as we've already seen, Proverbs would commend to us and even commands us to concerning the fear of the, of the fear of the Lord. And in some places, it will even talk to us about the fear of the Lord in ways that are perplexing and surprising. It'll talk about the fear of the Lord as being intermingled with a sense of joy and delight and assurance. Proverbs 14, 26 tells us that in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. The fear of the Lord leads to confidence, he says. It seems, it seems maybe like it's at odds with some of the texts we just read as they speak about fear. Proverbs 19.23, again, says the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. So the fear of the Lord leads to satisfaction and rest. That's strange, isn't it? You don't think of fear as leading to those sorts of experiences. Proverbs 28, 14 says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Blessed. The Hebrew word there is, is, is esher, which does not mean that the Lord gives his, his benediction to one who fears him, even while that might be true. Esher means happy. It's a descriptive phrase that talks about the one who fears the Lord being happy. We don't typically associate confidence and rest and satisfaction and happiness with fear, but Proverbs does. And what's more is that the rest of the Bible will, will likewise sometimes talk about the fear of the Lord in these kinds of ways. Isaiah 33, 6 says that the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Right? In other words, the fear of the Lord is the treasure of God's people. Fear's our treasure. Jeremiah 33, 9. When we see the, the joy that the gospel brings being foretold by the prophet there, he says, and this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. You see, God's people are supposed to fear in light of all of his goodness and loving kindness to us in the gospel. And this fear is supposed to exist with a sense of overwhelming joy. Acts 9.31 describes something of the fulfillment of that promise when the, the churches in the regions of Judea and Samaria and Galilee uh, were, were all there, and it says they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we don't typically think of fear and comfort as going hand in hand, but apparently they do. And what's even more 
is when Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3 are describing the, the ministry and character of the Lord Jesus. The prophet says concerning him, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Again, we don't typically think of fear and delight as going hand in hand together, but much more, we might not think of the Lord Jesus as being rightly characterized by fear of the Lord at least not in the way we might typically understand fear, but, but here he says it is. And so maybe we're seeing here that the kind of fear toward God that is being commended to us in Proverbs is not, not a fear that would give us a kind of alarm or trepidation or dismay toward God. This kind of fear is a fear that can exist with and even produces a sense of comfort and joy and peace and satisfaction. And it's here that maybe we should just grow rather comfortable with the fact that in many ways, we often use the same or similar words to communicate different types of ideas or experiences. Michael Reeves, in his wonderful book um, on the fear of the Lord, Rejoice and Tremble, he makes this point when he shows how often we use the word love to describe different kinds of experiences or feelings. I, I can tell you this morning in full truthfulness that I love cold brew coffee from press just up the road. But I, I trust you would know that I mean something quite different when I say that I love Amy Green. It's the same word, but I don't mean the exact same thing by them. Or I could tell you with confidence this morning that Pastor Dan loves his golden doodle puppies. I I didn't even need to ask him about this. I know he loves his golden doodle puppies. When you hear Pastor Dan say that he loves the Lord Jesus, he means something quite different than when he talks about his love for his his golden doodle puppies. You know, I, I, I think we can say with confidence that we can often use the same word to describe different sorts of experiences or emotions or sensations. And in the same way, we talk about fear in different ways. You might say that you feel fear when you're watching a, a, a horror flick with your friends. Or you might also say that you feel fear when a, when a family member jumps out from behind a corner to scare you, as we sometimes like to do in our household. But you might also say that you feel fear when beholding the splendor and the majesty of the Grand Canyon. And fear would accurately describe each of those experiences. But you don't mean the exact same thing by using that word in each instance, do you? Right? In the first two experiences, fear is is characterized by anxiety or distress or alarm or horror. But when you behold the Grand Canyon, this feeling of fear, couldn't it be described as awe? Couldn't it be described as being overwhelmed at the beauty and vastness and wonder that we call the Grand Canyon as it makes you feel so small and yet caught up into something so large and majestic and wonderful? And yet there's also a healthy respect for it too, right? Since you have, you have no chance of survival if you fall off the edge of that thing. Might you also call that experience fear? The same word can be used to describe different sorts of postures and sensations and the complicated emotional life that we experience as humans. And it was for this reason that the old timers in the faith 
They used to use different phrases to talk about the differing kinds of fear toward the Lord. They used to distinguish between servile fear and filial fear. Servile fear and filial fear. Servile fear being a a slavish or an enslaving fear. Filial fear, filial uh, comes from the Latin word filius, which means son, or philia, meaning daughter. Filial fear is a fear due from a son or daughter, right? Filial fear, or servile fear rather, is a dread of God and his wrath and his punishments that would keep you from, from drawing near to him in adoration and worship and communion. It's the kind of free we're to be set free from in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Filial fear is the fear of a devoted and delighted child of God who joyfully draws near to God in awe and marvel and wonder, overwhelmed by how great and how good he is toward you, that is the kind of fear that characterized Christ himself in Isaiah 11. And it's also the kind of fear that he shares with us when he shares his sonship before the Father with us. So that we too might experience filial fear. The author of The the Wind and the Willows perhaps captured something of this well when he wrote about the moles and the rats encounter with the presence of the living God. It describes a scene when when uh, mole and and rat, they're they're searching for otter, but but they happen upon the the presence of the living God and said, and it says, suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. Rat! He found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid? Murmured Rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid? Of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. And the two animals crouching to the earth bowed their heads and did worship. You see how how fear, this overwhelming sense of awe and wonder and marvel and reverence can also be joyful and confident and filled with love. You see how how when you fear God in this way, you're, you're far from dreading him, but you still joyfully tremble before him, or or as Michael Reeves puts it. When you fear God in this way, you are overwhelmed by his goodness and majesty and holiness and grace and righteousness, by all that God is. The biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of love toward God that is fitting. It shows us that God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. To encounter the living, holy, and all-gracious God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. Seen clearly, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. Indeed, when you you encounter something or, or someone, rather, so grand and so big, so magnificent, so majestic, so just, so holy, when you encounter one, who stirs the oceans with his pinky. When you encounter one who, whose thunderous voice speaks worlds into existence, when you encounter one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, but who is also so kind 
and so gracious and so tender-hearted who, who forgives those sins that make you wince with shame when you think of them, who, who patiently bears with your weaknesses and wickedness, whose love infinitely outstrips even the most tender and affectionate of parents, what could be more appropriate than responding with overwhelming awe and reverence and adoration and marvel, what could be more appropriate than filial fear? But then we're, we're not just interested in explaining what the fear of the Lord is. We, we also want to know what kind of life it produces and builds and leads to. And so look with me next at the foundation of wisdom, what it builds. Again, our text says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. No fear of the Lord no wisdom. You don't fear God, you won't be wise. Remember what wisdom is, though. It, it doesn't mean that you know, certain kinds of worldly wisdom will be entirely out of your grasp unless you fear the Lord. It doesn't mean that you can't be savvy in business. It doesn't mean that you can't be cunning with finances or possess some common grace virtue in regard to relationships or whatever else. But remember, wisdom in Proverbs is godliness in work clothes, or, or, or the way we've been defining it a bit over the last several months. Wisdom is the skill of living in right relationship with everything in life, and it begins by being in right relationship with God. It's the skill of living in right relationship with everything, with, with your family, with your parents and siblings, your spouse, your children. It's the skill of living in right relationship with finances and material things, in right relationship with food and drink, and living in right relationship with your emotions, with death, with anger, with work, with words, with decision-making, with friendship. It's living in right relationship with church and to those in need and to those in authority over you. And we could go on and on here. It's living in, in accordance with God's design and all of those relationships and spheres and activities. It's acknowledging that since God is the omnipotent and omniscient creator and designer of all things, that he must then therefore know how the, he, he must possess the blueprint to how it's all supposed to work, and that it's building a life in accordance with his blueprint that he's revealed to us in his word. That's wisdom. And fear of the Lord is how it begins. And don't misunderstand when we say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We don't mean that, that the fear of the Lord is like the first step, or that it's even the starting place while you move on to different or deeper things. No, the fear of the Lord is not like an entrance into a life of wisdom. If, if you think of, of a life of wisdom as like a house, the fear of the Lord is not the front door, it's the foundation. When you build a house, you have to begin by laying a foundation. As long, and, 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 and not only that, you must continue to need and depend on that foundation as long as that house will endure. And so it is with wisdom. When you're building a life of wisdom, you begin by laying the foundation of the fear of the Lord, and you continue to rely upon and need and depend on that foundation as you build a life of wisdom. Or we might also think of the fear of the Lord as maybe roots in a tree, right? After a seed is dispersed, its first step in growing and flourishing is to grow its first root. It's called the taproot. And that root works its way down into the soil and 
And only then does the stem begin to grow up above the ground there. And even still, those roots will need to be there and be healthy for the tree to grow and have any real life. And even as time goes on, the roots themselves will grow and deepen and expand as the tree above ground begins to grow and expand. Even so, the fear of the Lord relates to wisdom kind of like a foundation to a house or like roots to a tree. It must be present if wisdom will begin and endure and grow. And perhaps you can see easily why that is, right? When you come into right relationship with God, when, when you come into this relationship with God where, where you have adoring awe toward him, where you have a rejoicing reverence, a, a, a delighted dread, a, a relationship of rapturous respect toward him, when you begin to catch a glimpse of how splendorous and gracious and matchlessly majestic and holy he is, and how good he is to you, well, he just naturally becomes the center and axis of your life, doesn't he? He becomes the focus, the obsession, the all-consuming fascination of your heart. He becomes the sun and the solar system of your life around which everything else rotates and revolves. And your entire life is then lived before him in a desire to love and please and honor him in all things. And when that happens, you begin to live in accordance with his design, according to his blueprint, because that is your delight. Because you live to be a delight to your father. Your greatest and highest aim is to please him. That's why Proverbs 3, 7 can command us, saying, fear the Lord and turn away from evil, as though fearing God and turning away from evil are two sides of the same coin. This is Proverbs 16, 6 says, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. You see, the the, the one who fears the Lord with filial fear, to, to them, evil will become increasingly distasteful. They will increasingly disdain in themselves what is dishonoring to God. That's why Proverbs 14.2 claims that whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. The person who fears the Lord begins to grow in godliness and wisdom and uprightness before the Lord because they live to please him. And it's not, listen, it's not because they fear the Lord's punishment. It's not because they fear his wrath and indignation for their wickedness. No, that's, that's servile fear. In that case, obedience to the Lord would be motivated from servile fear, which is not actually any real kind of obedience at all. Because it doesn't come from a place of sincere love and desire in our hearts. The Lord wants us to fear him and to thereby pursue obedience and godliness and wisdom because we find him to be so wonderful that his pleasure becomes our delight. One of those old timers I mentioned earlier, he used to distinguish between servile fear and filial fear was this Puritan, Thomas Boston, He once spoke to this very reality in a sermon he preached long ago where he said, slavish fear dreads nothing but hell and punishment. Filial fear dreads sin itself. The one is mixed with hatred of God, the other with love to him. The one looks upon him as a revenging judge, the other as a holy father to whose holiness the heart is reconciled and the soul longs to be conformed. In other words, our filial fear 
toward our Father in heaven begets a sincere desire to live so as to honor and glorify him in all things, to obey and revere him as the center and access of our lives. Fear in this way is the foundation of wisdom. That kind of fear is what a life of wisdom is built upon. If at the end of this series, you've heard about marriage, parenting, sexuality, financial stewardship, work, friendship, decision-making, and, and, and you find what you've heard attractive and desirable in some respect. Well, it, friend, in order to obtain this kind of godly and commendable life, you must first learn the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the foundation of wisdom. Then we've seen what it is and what it builds And that just begs the question then, how do we grow in it? Anyone who desires wisdom must start with the fear of the Lord. And so we've got to ask, how do we get that? Anyone who already does rightly fear the Lord wants to fear him all the more and to grow all the more and more deeply in wisdom and godliness. And so how can we grow in fearing the Lord? Look at me last at the formation of fear, how it grows. From the get-go, we should just recognize straight away that the fear of the Lord is not something you can just manufacture by a few tricks and tips. Right? There's no, there are no life hacks I could give you through which you could fabricate the fear of the Lord. And here's why. It's because the fear of the Lord is a matter of the heart. To, to grow in the fear of the Lord is to have a change take place in your heart. It's to have uh, the expulsive power of a new affection, as Thomas Chalmers put it. And here's something that is inescapably true and experienced by anyone who has ever truly tried to change. You're powerless to change your own heart. As Jeremiah 13, 23 put it, a leopard can no more change its spots than you can change your heart. You might well be able to change a few external habits. And that might be all well and good. It might be a good idea in some respect. You you might be able to change others' perception of you by a few external changes. But you can't change yourself, not in the way we're talking about. For this kind of radical renewal, this heart-transforming change that results in a true fear of the Lord, something far greater than what you're capable of is needed. And so how do we even begin to form and grow in this kind of fear. Proverbs would first tell us to begin by by begging the Lord for wisdom. We can't change ourselves, but there's a God who welcomes us and invites us to come to him and a means through which he ordinarily works to change his people is the means of faith-filled prayer. And so if we want to grow and see Filial fear formed in us. We can cry out to him and seek him for it. And Proverbs 2, 1 to 5 tells us to do precisely that. It says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Right? Notice the logic. There, there's a promise here 
But it's a conditional promise. If you receive the Father's words and treasure up his commands, if you incline your ears and heart, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek and search for wisdom, then, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. In other words, if you beg the Lord, if you, if you call out to him in sincere and sustained prayer, he will honor your seeking with finding. If you seek him for wisdom, he will satisfy you with his fear. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Because while we're powerless to change our hearts, nothing is challenging for his omnipotence. While we can do no more to change our hearts than a leopard can change his spots, we worship the one who gave the leopard his spots in the first place. We worship, as we said earlier, the one who stirs the ocean with his pinky, whose thunderous voice flings planets into existence, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's no heart too hard or too dark, or too obstinate, that he cannot change it still. And so if you ever find yourself in desperation, wondering, as I have many times myself, why am I so messed up? Why am I so foolish? Why am I so wicked and broken? Why can't I seem to change? I want to be wise. I want to be godly. I want to honor the Lord with my life. But I'm far more broken than I want to be. If you ever find yourself there, here's encouragement. There is no lost cause. There is no case too hard for God. This promise is for you. If you cry out to God and pursue him for wisdom, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And you will begin to be wise. But then not only ought we to beg the Lord for wisdom, we ought to behold what he has done. It would seem that, that praying, just as praying and crying out to God for wisdom is a means through which the Lord gives us filial fear, so is beholding what he has done. And we see this in the prophet Samuel in his farewell address among the people of God when, when encouraging and exhorting the people before his departure. He says to them, 1 Samuel 12, 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully, he says, for or because, and here he's going to say something meant to ignite and initiate the fear of the Lord in our hearts as his people. Consider what great things he has done for you. Contemplate, meditate on, behold the great things he has done for you. And of course, the people of Israel at that time might have considered a, a plethora of works, of gracious works that the Lord had accomplished for their benefit. He kept his promises to Abraham and the patriarchs. He redeemed them in the Exodus, and then he led them and guided them through the wilderness and desert with his presence. He defeated the armies of the nations. He brought them into the promised land, a land of milk and honey and abundance and fruitfulness. He gave them a kingdom. He sustained them and protected them and provided for them and did marvelous things, all worthy of adoration and awe and reverence and rejoicing and dread and delight. But still, none of them can even compare to what we know God has now done for us as his people. Haven't we now, we've been given 
a far greater redemption, a far greater rescue? Haven't we seen fulfillments of far greater promises and been brought into a far greater eternal and excellent kingdom? And all of this through the most glorious and most gruesome cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this cross that we are redeemed, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin and guilt. And it's through this cross that we're brought into the promised land, not with merely passing the lights of milk and honey, but given eternal life and the ability to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that, that gives us all the more reason and cause to fear God as beloved sons and daughters. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, the psalmist writes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where our forgiveness is purchased and procured, that is the ultimate work of God that provokes and prompts our fear. You see, fear begets wisdom, but beholding the cross of Jesus Christ begets fear in us. You'll permit me to quote someone we did in our very first sermon in the series 21 weeks ago. It seems fitting to maybe end the way that we began. Hearing from 19th century Scottish theologian John Brown, he once said this, Nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God, which will preserve men from offending him, into the heart as an enlightened view of the cross of Christ. There shines spotless holiness, inflexible justice, incomprehensible wisdom, omnipotent power, holy love. Nowhere does justice appear so awesome, mercy so amiable or wisdom so profound, and thus nowhere else do we find such cause to fear our God. Beloved, if if you would grow in fearing God, behold with the eyes of your heart the cross work of Jesus Christ. There we, we find a God revealed whose power and holiness and justice and wisdom demands our heartfelt reverence and awe. And there we find a God revealed who is so kind and gracious and merciful that you cannot help but rejoice in and adore him. And then you will begin to fear him rightly. And if you keep the cross before the eyes of your heart, you will continue to grow in fearing him rightly and you will be wise. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to behold the cross of Jesus Christ with the eyes of our heart, and so would you open our eyes now, just as you did among the disciples when Jesus broke bread, would you open our eyes now in the breaking of bread to behold him 
with the eyes of our hearts so that we might be put into a state, a posture of fear, of awe, of overwhelming adoration and astonishment, a state of love and joy and reverence, a state of filial fear. And then as that takes place, would we go from here as a people, continuing to walk in that filial fear with lives that honor you and glorify you, lives of of godliness, lives of wisdom in our relationships, in our activities, in our work, in our homes, in all areas of life that we might live to the praise of the glorious grace with which you have blessed us in the beloved, that you might receive honor and glory through us as your people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.